Welcome. I'm Gretchen Keesteidel, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this 10-part series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practice, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Marina Pfeffer. I'm co-founder to Generation Pledge, board member at IDMAX Foundation. And one way that I cultivate my soul is by sharing aspirations with people that I find along the journey. We are joined by Marina Pfeffer. Marina is a member of the fourth generation of the Pfeffer family from the Suzano Group in Brazil. She serves on the board of her family's foundation, the Arimax Foundation, and has co-founded Generation Pledge. Generation Pledge is a growing community of inheritors of ultra-high net wealth families who commit to doing the most good with all their resources towards solving the world's most complex problems. Her full bio is on our podcast website you'll learn a very practical and intentional model for philanthropic investment that pairs deep inquiry and intellectual humility with a rational approach for maximizing impact. Welcome, Marina. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I'd love to ask you to start us off with a story from your childhood that can help us understand your earliest relationship to money and how it shaped you, how it taught you the power of money to do good? Yeah, sure. Thank you for this question, Gretchen. The story that comes to mind, I was raised by my parents in a way that they taught me to achieve things that I wanted. So it wasn't given for granted. So I really had to pursue whatever I wanted. And I was really young, like maybe seven years old. And there was a specific candy that I loved. And I told them, like, I really want this candy. And they said, like, well, if you stay, like, performing well the whole week, then we'll take you to the supermarket to buy those candies. And I did focus a lot in achieving everything that I had. And end of the week, I went back, mom, dad... How was it? Am I ready for the candy? They said I I was. My mom took me to the market and we bought the candy and we paid for it. And as we left the supermarket, we encountered a little girl. Um, She was my age and she was definitely like in a really vulnerable situation. Like you could see that she was really taken by poverty and she was with her mom like and she came she saw the package of candies in my hands and she asked me can you give me one and then I remember that my first reaction was giving her the whole package and I remember my mom coming back to me and saying how surprised she was by that and it was a no-brainer for me doing that this is like a childhood story like a little girl but it does make a lot of sense today to me, because it comes from a place of wholehearted and really looking into the other and acknowledging differences and needs 
and this like availability to acknowledge and share really guides me in difficult questions that I face today as an adult. It sounds like you've had generosity in your heart for a really long time. In fact, from what I understand, much of your early personal journey involved breaking away from your family to explore people of need. I hear that you've spent time with the homeless, the incarcerated, children living in orphanages, even with someone who was living in a garbage dump. Was that moment or was there another moment that was the spark that drove you to investigate human suffering in the lives around you in such a way? I've asked myself this question, like, where does it come from? Like, what was formative for me? But the honest answer is that I don't remember of a time where this has not been the case. I think about who I am and having others mattering to me is a driver that is with me since ever. So I've been like this since I remember about myself. So maybe like if we were to try and put this into words, I'd say that others matter. And this has been an orientation for me. Can you tell us about one of your experiences stepping into an environment that was very different than your own and what you experienced and learned about yourself from doing so? There was a trip that I did by myself. It was not at all like in contact with extreme poverty as I have been exposed professionally for a long time. But when I was 18 years old, I decided to go backpacking alone for a week. So it was like in a safe environment. So it was in Europe. But the reason why I wanted to do that was because I wanted to learn about how do I function when I'm away from home, when I'm alone, and when I have many possibilities ahead of me. And what I found out is that I really enjoy staying alone with myself and diving into my books my thoughts, even though I'm very much of an extrovert, staying alone matters. Staying alone is a pillar that really energizes me. And I'm not scared of doing that. Actually, it is a source of everything, maybe. <laughs> that sense of being in solitude, but not feeling alone. I understand human development has fascinated you for some time. Can you tell us a little bit more about your own personal development and spiritual journey? As a young girl, I remember having important conversations about what is life, what is the world, like worldview within my own family and with other people that came from spaces of wealth. And I also remember having this conversation with people that lived in different realities. And what struck me was that the narratives, they could be so different. So what I learned out of that, because I've always been like super curious, like to learn about what people think about, is that depending on your environment and the experiences that you live, you'll build a certain mindset. And this mindset is the raw material with which you'll make decisions. And these decisions, they become strategies. These decisions, they become policies. These are the decisions that are going to decide if a business, for example, is going to be ran in a way or in another way. So I was really intrigued by how is it that we become who we are in our beliefs, with our personalities, which are these experiences that are formative to who we become. 
also like early days, like maybe like 14, 15, 16 years old, like the things that I enjoyed thinking about, they were more structural issues. So I see myself as someone that is very interested and thrilled by systems like this is how I naturally think but at the same time I know that systems they are built by people so human development and how we become who we are and that relation to systems like this has been my big question in life so how do we become who we are and how does that reflect into complex structures and systems and therefore like how do we change them if we want to go in a certain direction So this has been like the thing in life that I've most thought about. And this took me into studying psychology in university and using the skills that I acquired through psychology and the behavioral sciences to serve social, environmental, complex questions. So putting the human development at service of impact themes. Can you give us... An example, maybe from your own life or one that you've experienced among others of how we're raised or how we've developed in these formative years informs the way we impact the systems and structures around us. Great question. I'll share with you one story that took me a long time to open myself to. I'm fourth generation of a family that is into business. And this means that we have certain role models, all of the families, all of the individuals do. And in our family group, role models are like the founder of the company. So that's my great-grandfather, then his son, my grandfather. My father was the one who led the business after them. So the models are of those businessmen who created a lot of wealth, that have a very strong entrepreneurial vein. And I grew up listening to my father saying that I had to be independent, productive, and satisfied with my own life. And for many, many years, this meant to me that I had to be someone with capacity of producing and creating wealth. So from my like 23 years old, until I was like maybe 30 years old, I believed that I had to maintain myself alone. And I did that. So I didn't ask for money to my parents. I managed to pay my bills by myself through my own work. And there was one moment in life that I stopped to think about that because the narrative, the belief that I had in my mind was I have to make as much money as I received as a kid because this means success. And when I stopped to think about that, I come from a family that has the opportunity of giving me the time, the space and the resources and the platform to be able to craft a career that has impact as the first objective. Why do I need to make as much money as the previous ones if this is something that is available and I can really feel freedom to pursue the biggest impact that I can achieve as possible? Why don't I give myself more freedom to take risks. So that was a huge belief that I had to change, something that I have to unwrap in my mind. It sounds like this is really the essence of what you're now trying to do through Generation Pledge. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and how it's manifesting that you're 
inviting others into this kind of curiosity and exploration of their own potential impact? So what we're doing with Generation Pledge is really bringing a polarity of boldness and ambition in really saying, let's step up to the plate and get the value that we can from being from a certain demographic and allowing ourselves to think about the design of the future. Um, So being bold and ambitious on one hand, and at the same time, having intellectual humility in acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know, and doing the most good that we can is really hard, and that there's a lot of promise on top of the generation of inheritors, the one that will receive the biggest wealth transfer in history in the next years. We're talking about 30 to $70 trillion in transfers. So We have a lot of promises for this generation, but it's not given that we will be able to pursue this transformation, that we will be able to see it happen. So with Generation Pledge, we're inviting inheritors that feel this calling of using all of their resources to really find collectively the best ways to build the future that we would like to live in. We like it or not, we know that there is incomparable potential of doing good Because people come from this demographic, we really want to make sure that we rethink the culture around inheritance and multi-generational wealth. So this is what we're doing through Generation Pledge, creating a community, a global community based on trust, but also taking effectiveness a lot into account. How can we make sure that we use wisely the resources that are available, find the best solutions, think about a collective impact because the challenges are really complex. So this is what we're putting together in this growing community of like-minded inheritors. What does inner work have to play as a role in that quest? Many of the conversations that I have with pledgers, like the people who become part of our community or conversations that I feel as sacred ones. So my role in Generation Pledge is one of growth, of expansion. So when people want to join, they speak to me. So I'm the one that gets the gift of getting to know these people. So it's like many, many times in my week, I feel so elevated by these people, by these stories, by the whys they want to be part of this. And it's totally connected to inner work. The stories that we hear, how people feel called, how people feel mission-oriented. Sometimes it's more rationally guided. Sometimes it's more from the heart. But it's totally connected to their existence, to an identity issue. Do you work to support the inner development of any of the inheritors and philanthropists that you work with? A lot of what we do and we evaluate that speaks about meaning. So how meaningful the connections were, how meaningful on the moments that we shared were, and how much it supported people in expand themselves. But this is more of something that happens through what we offer. We have not yet started to do programming on inner work although everything that we do speaks about inner work. 
but it's not a official programming that we do because if we were to do that, we would necessarily want to do it really well because we know that not all of the spaces that are offered have like quality in what's offered and we wouldn't want to take any risks on that, not to be misleading. So we want to be responsible when offering and if offering that officially. Sure, that makes perfect sense. What about for you? What has been the most transformative practice that has served you over time or has been responsible for your deepest transformative moments? Since 18 years old, I did that for many, many years. I had practices that were spiritual practices with rituals. They came from a shamanic lineage and it made a lot of sense to me to participate in these gatherings and these retreats and these rituals, mostly one called Temascal, which is fire inside a tent that represents a womb. It's really like feeling connected to nature, feeling connected to the earth, learning to listen to yourself, listening to the world, listening to the universe. So I think that this taught me, not that I do it always and not that I do it well, but it has taught me at least the importance of listening to sources that are not like the first rational information that comes to us to be able to see beyond what's obvious and really use intuition to understand things better. Are there any stories you want to tell us about any of your transformative moments? But if there's one that really speaks to you that has been one of those powerful teaching moments or aha moments that have been pretty critical to your success and personal transformation. What I can say about that is that social work or environmental work, but trying to address these challenges that are very complex, they are much harder than they might seem to be. So... From my own experience, it makes us get in touch with a lot of our own vulnerability because the answers or the decisions on how to make deployments not necessarily are obvious because the way of measuring what success looks like, sometimes they are vague road, sometimes they are tricky to get to, and our personal beliefs or preferences or biases even if we have been a business leader of a lot of success, not necessarily mean that we will achieve success in these spaces of impact. So it makes us necessarily have to hold space for vulnerability in the sense of acknowledging that we do not know what is best, that we don't know the best way of performing. So very often that is something that I pay attention to, how humble we have to be in looking for the best resources available and just being at service to support the people who know better or the information that we have learned that works better and being less about ourselves and our preferences and more at service of what has higher probabilities of working. So that level of intellectual humility, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable listening deeply to those who have deep insights into the lived experience of that situation you're trying to address can help in guiding 
that process and that that willingness to get your ego out of the way and step back is informed by the inner work that we have to do. Totally, yes. Let me ask you about another tension in philanthropy. Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, said the real goal of giving should be justice, not generosity, that we should be working on the systemic reasons for an issue as opposed to making the donor feel better, and that justice implicates the donor. And so at a time when so many of the world are more closely examining privilege and what is needed to dismantle systems of inequity, what role can philanthropy play when so much of wealth has evolved out of inequity and privilege? The importance of inner work is super clear because we have to be able to face ourselves, look into the mirror and ask the hard questions. So with Generation Pledge, for example, we developed a model that is the LEB model. So look with courage inside and outside, really face the challenging questions about our own incoherences and the world's incoherences. So this first moment of looking, and we say that that is like a a diamond spine moment. How can you ask yourself the important questions without having your back broken? So that we understand to be such an important moment. The second moment of envisioning and envisioning with rigor so that we really put a arrow in a certain direction. That is where we want to go. We're all going to row in the same direction. And then the build phase, which is build with excellence. So how do you make sure that you find the best partners, the best players, the best interventions, the best data to back your decisions? So I find that this, we as Generation Pledge, we find that this model, which is an ongoing one. So you look, you envision, you build, then you look again, you envision and you build. This is a model that really helps us into looking inside and building in a deliberate and conscious approach, which is something so hard to do. And with philanthropy, we see that it's so common that people make decisions based on compassion, but compassion not necessarily takes you in the right direction. It might make you feel good, but not necessarily do good. So I couldn't agree more with the quote. I think that the two sources of asking ourselves if what we're doing serves the world is looking inside and benchmarking our results against what we know that works. Thank you for that. I mean, that model is intentional. It's deeply practical and it's accessible. It's an easy way for so many of us on whatever place on the spectrum of action and investment we are operating on can use to ask those questions of ourselves and to ensure what we're doing is going to have the maximal impact. I know you work with a lot of the next generation in your work Are you finding that they're really embracing this orientation? And what do you see as the role for this next generation to play? Are they doing things differently than you think philanthropists have done in the past? Yes, and so when we're building Generation Pledge, we're talking about next generation, but not necessarily these are young people. It's the next generation of wealth owners. So it's second generation beyond. We have people in our community, for example, that are 65 years old and others that are 22 years old. 
So the range is huge. But a message that does resonate is acknowledging that the state of the industry of impact and philanthropy is not at all the state of the art. So if that is the case, what can we open as new spaces internally to reflect that externally? What do we need to do to make sure that our deployments, our mindsets, our preferences, our choices are different? So we find a lot of openness in our community. And to make sure that we work with the right people, we deliberately ask these questions. How much space do you have to change positions, for example, when you're exposed to information that are different than what you expected, but they seem to have a probability really high of making something work? Are you willing to change position or are you addicted to your own preferences? So we ask people these questions to make sure that we are aligned in values and that the work that we'll do together has more ease because of that. Can you give us an example of what this actually looks like in practice? Yeah, sure. So we know that one of the most important decisions that we have to make if we're talking about impact and impact being what we achieved in difference between what would have happened otherwise or because we did something. So this delta is impact. That is the result. So we know that one of the most important decisions are the cause areas that we're going to invest in. And it's super common that people have their decisions made because of what they've heard or because of their family endeavors or because of things that they've been more exposed to in their lives. And what we see is that when people inside Generation Pledge, when they talk to us and we bring the criteria that we use to look into impact and the tools that we either developed or that partners that we work with that they have in guiding people and make better decisions about what are causes that they're going to deploy money into, we see that people are very open in changing their positions. So because one thing that we listen to all of the time in the impact world is what are you passionate about? Follow that. And we disagree fully because you get so passionate about something that it can be intoxicating and it can make you get blind and not make deliberate and thoughtful decisions. So when we're talking about impact, rationality does have an important role. And rationality is not against intuition, not at all. They are complementary. But if we want to make sure that we have the biggest results as possible, we have to use our rationality too. And we have to make sure that we're tapping into the sources of evidence that have been available to us. That is a conversation, like a practical example, that is really interesting, like how people sometimes come with defined preferences when exposed to specific tools and understanding like how much money has been deployed in a certain cause area, for example. So if you have a new pool of capital, why would you put it in that area and not in another one that has a huge potential but is neglected? So these are the conversations that they're beautiful and they do rely also on openness, like in the inner work, people that don't feel frightened by changing positions. Right. So, I mean, you're really making sound financial and investment decisions for the maximal return on investment. And it takes that willingness to step back, to listen, to shift and change and be willing to be 
responsive and flexible as opposed to coming in with that really well-defined, even historical notion of what needs to happen and where things should go. It's got to be really fun as you see people make these shifts and then have some really profound impact. Is there any one particular philanthropic investment that you, through your family foundation or others you've worked with, have made that really embody this kind of an approach that resulted in something really extraordinary, a story you want to tell us about? Yeah, so the way that we pivoted our own family foundation is a story that really touches me deeply. And I got completely involved. So together with my elder sister, we had the opportunity of leading this process. So being completely backed by our board. But we decided that we were going to find one specific cause area to work with because we had a certain pulverization of areas before and when we decided to pivot instead of asking ourselves like our personal preferences what we did was that we hired two consultancy companies that work with a lot of rigor and impact they were our my partners actually through generation pledge the two organizations that i most trusted to help us in building this new agenda for the idmax foundation And what we did is that we researched 19 different cause areas and we ranked them by effectiveness and we studied them deeply from 19 to 9 areas, then 5 areas, then 3 areas. And along the way, we had so many discussions in the board. So in one year and a half, I think that we had like 12 different board meetings because we all dedicated ourselves to learning impact methodologies, concepts, all of us, we engaged in the process. And we really like we read many, many, many pages until finally got into the three main cause areas that they were ranked by how much potential they could offer to society first. So there was a hierarchy. It was not what we want and then what's good to society. It was the opposite. What does society need and how do we put ourselves at service? So it was really um, finding a way of understanding that it's only good for us if it serves the world and what the world needs. So the way that we pivoted our whole strategy with this type of thinking is a story that I feel so happy of being part of and lived in all of the process because it was not easy at all. Many parts of the journey we found barriers. So there was someone that used to work with education for like 20 years. The person knew like all of the big players knew the strategies to invest. And we decided that education, at least in Brazil, did not make sense for us to invest because there were many big players already there. So why would we be one more? What were the chances of us doing a big difference there? So along the way, we really had to open ourselves, learn new information. And that is a story that has been one of the most fulfilling for me personally and professionally. What are the three areas that you chose to invest in? So the three areas, actually, they were the ranking of the three most effective ones. And in the end of the day, we chose only one, which is productive inclusion. So how do we work with vulnerable communities, economically vulnerable, to support them in entering the workplace. 
And we did that completely backed by research, by evidence, by data, not only to pick the cause area, but also to build the strategies on how to do that. So after we decided this cause area, we studied seven different approaches and we got three different approaches, which are the ones that guide us today. So looking into rural entrepreneurship, which is something that is really neglected in Brazil and has a huge scope for potential. Looking into marginal entrepreneurship also in Brazil and looking into formal employment, which has a very big opportunity here if done properly. What is next for you that you're most excited about? What I've been thinking about How do we help ourselves? How do we find nudges in mindset to have a more long-termist type of thinking? So that is something that makes a lot of sense. And how do we build a narrative that is strong enough to support people in getting there? So I feel like we're in a moment in history where a lot is in flux and the narrative of giving us the direction of the future that we would like to live in is not ready. So how do we create this narrative and how do we find ways of supporting people in changing mindsets and behavior in getting there? So a lot tied into this long-term type of thinking. I want to thank you so much. Your advice and your orientation and approach of looking deeply envisioning and then building is likely going to be so valuable to so many other families who can learn from your approach. Where can people connect with you or learn more and get involved? I'm really open to connecting with whoever wants to talk more. My email is marina at generationpledge.org. Our website is www.generationpledge.org. And I'm very happy to connect with all of you. Thank you so much, Marina. I am very inspired by your intentional, inner-driven, but also rational and thoughtful approach to creating social impact. Thank you so much, Gretchen, for this conversation. Thank you for having me here. And we'll stay close in touch. Cultivate the Soul is presented by Synergos, copyright 2021. To learn more, visit Synergos.org and find more episodes at Synergos.org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.